As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Dror Barnatin is a professor of pure mathematics at the University of Toronto, previously specializing in knot theory, and more recently specializing in finite type invariance and Kovanov homology. We touch on quantum field theory's connection to knot theory, how to learn mathematics in general. We also touch on Ed Witten as Dror Barnatin's advisor for his PhD was Ed Witten, and Dror gives some anecdotes about Eric Weinstein as while Eric was pursuing his PhD, Dror served as an informal advisor to Eric at Harvard. Professor Barnatton taught a course in linear algebra that I took while I was at the University of Toronto, although I was a terrible student and I regret that I skipped the majority of his classes because he had an exceedingly intuitive approach. For example, there are vector space axioms, can I, I do, and they seem extremely disconnected from any reason or motivation. So what the professor would do would be before introducing a particular abstraction, he would say, imagine seven times a vector instead of imagine a times a vector, and then generalize it, which gave the abstraction some concreteness. For those new to this channel, my name is Kurt Jaimungle. I'm a filmmaker with a background in math and physics, dedicated to explicating what are called theories of everything from a mathematical physics perspective, but also the possible connections consciousness has to the fundamental laws of nature, provided these laws exist at all and are knowable to us. This particular podcast isn't one to be listened to, or at least you can, but you're going to be frustrated as what's being referred to are one-dimensional objects embedded in a three-dimensional space in some configuration, and the verbal description leaves much to be desired. If you're listening to this on Spotify or iTunes, I recommend you click the link in the description and follow along. You can also download a PDF of the written notes from this podcast in the description as well. There are a couple sponsors of today's podcast. The first is Algo, which is an end-to-end supply chain optimization software company with software that helps business users optimize sales and operations, planning to avoid stockouts, reduce returns, and inventory write-downs while reducing inventory investment. It's a supply chain AI that drives smart ROI, headed by a bright individual named Amjad Hussein, who's been a huge supporter of the podcast from its early days. The second sponsor is Brilliant. Brilliant illuminates the soul of mathematics, science, and engineering through bite-sized interactive learning experiences. Brilliant's courses explore the laws that shape our world, elevating math and science from something to be feared to a delightful experience of guided discovery. You can even learn group theory, which is what's being referred to when you hear that the standard model is based on U1 cross SU2 cross SU3. 
Visit brilliant.org slash toe, that is T-O-E, to get 20% off the annual subscription. I recommend that you at least try the free trial and don't stop before four lessons, and you'll be greatly surprised at the ease at which you can comprehend concepts that you previously had a difficult time understanding. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this, then do consider going to patreon.com slash kurtjaimungle. There's also a crypto address and a PayPal address if that's more up your alley. I now do this full-time, and the patrons are what allow for me to put out this content on such a frequent basis. Every dollar helps, certainly, and regardless, I'm grateful for your viewership. Again, that's patreon.com slash kurtjaimungle, C-U-R-T-J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. Thank you, and enjoy. I actually had you as a professor, I believe, in linear algebra. Mm-hmm. I hope you didn't suffer too much. Uh, that my favorite aspect of the course was that you would use the word seven. You give an example of a number. So you'd say a certain field number times a vector. Well, let's call it seven. So seven times a vector would be so-and-so. You know, it can get to extremes, right? You may end up doing things like uh, the limit of uh, e to the minus seven, uh, seven goes to infinity. Uh, is equal to whatever it is, zero, right? Anyway, yes. What's your field of research? Uh, not theory, and uh, from a very algebraic perspective, and uh, related uh, algebra things. It used to be uh, much more not theory and quantum field theory, and it slowed, slowly moved to to being much more algebraic and the relationship with quantum field theory became more and more remote. Okay, what's the relationship? Let's forget about the remoteness. What's the close relationship between not theory and quantum field theory? Ooh, it's a bit hard to explain and somewhat surprising and that why, that's why it took uh, a, a long time to discover. Let me give you two answers that are somewhat unrelated. And uh, one answer is that quantum field theory is about particles. Uh, and uh, not theory is surprisingly also about the motion of particles. So, uh, you know, let's draw a simple-minded knot. Uh, so, by the way, is this uh, visible, my screen? Yeah. Yep. Okay, so here is a simple-minded knot. It's actually the so-called trefoil knot, but, uh, well, whatever it is. Uh, now, uh, what you can do is you can, uh, so it, it's living in, in, in R3, and uh, I could set up my coordinates so that uh, this coordinate will be called T. Maybe you want to call it Z, but you know, I like to call it T at, at, uh, right now. And the two coordinates here are X and Y. And then I can slice this knot at uh, equal time uh, slices. So basically I uh, draw a plane which lives at some fixed height, so at an equal, an equal time plane, and slice the knot 
and then the slice is four points. And as I move these points in time, so as I move the slice in time, the points move, and they actually do a little lovely dance. And uh, the dance is as follows. So if we call these points uh, A, B, C, and D, then they start at a certain uh, position, A, B, C, and D, right? And then as I move, uh, well, you can see that C and B trade places. So they play a dance, they somehow dance around each other. Uh, uh, B goes this way and C goes that, sorry, B goes uh, one way and C goes the other way. And after a little while, they trade places. So you have A, C, sorry, A, uh, C, B, D. And as you move the plane even farther, they trade places again. So uh, again, you'll have uh, A, B, uh, C, D. And if you move a little farther, again, they trade places. So you'll have A, C, B, D. And then something funny happens. Uh, uh, points, uh, well, points, well, by this time, this is point B is over here and point C is over here. And point A is here and D is here. And what happens is that point C moves towards point D and mm -hmm. point A mo moves to point, point B and they coincide. And when they coincide, they annihilate each other because if you look at the plane which is above the, the level of the knot, um, uh, uh, you no longer see any points. So what happens next is that these points move towards each other, these points move to each other, they meet and bang, they annihilate. And after that, there is an empty set. And in fact, I started at height, uh, at a certain height, had I started below, I start with the empty set, and instead of annihilation of pairs, you get a creation of pairs. So a pair of points get created here, and a pair of points get created here, and then they perform this nice dance. So this was this particular knot, but the same story is true for every knot. Every knot can be written, as a certain dance of points in which uh, sometimes pairs get created, sometimes pair meet and annihilate each other, and in between these times, they all dance. Anyway, uh, physics in general is about the motion of particles, and it's not too surprising that there is a relationship. Physics also sees things like creation and, and annihilation of pairs of particles. And I mean, so again, it's not so surprising, but this is very, very, very loose. And gee, the other explanation I can give you is even more loose, uh, but even, but, but in some sense, more um, closer to the truth.
Uh, well, okay, maybe you've heard that quantum mechanics is related to path integrals. So, uh, you know, in classical mechanics, uh, you know, if a path goes from point A to point B, sorry, if a particle goes from point A to point B, it goes along a specific path. Um, in quantum mechanics, it has a probability of going uh, from A to B, and you compute this probability by doing a certain integral over the space of all paths. So the particle, or I, I, I mean, I'm, again, even, even my interpretation of quantum mechanics here is a bit loose because interpreting quantum mechanics is, is a very hard thing. Uh, but with this loose interpretation, you uh, sum over all probabilities of going this way or that way or that way or that way. And by adding up all these probabilities or more precisely integrating over the space of all, all of those probabilities or more precisely phase factors or, or um, amplitudes, uh, you, you can compute the probability of going from A to B. That's quantum mechanics. Now, uh, uh, likewise quantum field theory, but in quantum field theory, it, it's essentially the same, except the integrals are more complicated. But the point is that already these integrals are not like integrals over Rn, right? Rn is uh, the collection of n tuples of points, a1 up to an. So a point in Rn is determined by n real numbers. Whereas a function, the space we are integrating over now, is the space of all functions. And a function is determined by infinitely many real values. You need to know the value of the function here, the value of the function here, the value of the function here, the value of the function here. So to determine a function, you need to know infinite, infinitely many uh, real numbers. So the integral that you end up doing is not 157 style. Sorry, now I'm using uh, M, uh, Toronto style language. So it's not one variable calculus in integral which is, again, one variable uh, integral. It's not this. It's not second-year calculus when right. you do n variable uh, integrals. It's infinite-dimensional, so infinitely many variables integration. This is what we need. Okay? So, uh, quantum field theory ended up developing a bag of techniques for computing infinite dimensional integrals. And what these techniques are is a whole different story, but, uh, but, but quantum field theory ended up doing this. And then uh, it turns out that infinite dimensional integrals are useful to topology. So, so the, the, the the, the way that quantum field theory becomes useful in topology is indirect. It's not that the quantum field theory itself is useful, 
even this is a lie because sometimes the quantum field theory itself is useful. But the, but the main path by which quantum field theory becomes useful to topology is not uh, uh, direct, but a bit indirect. Quantum field theory developed a bag of techniques, and this bag of techniques applies elsewhere. Uh, anyway, why are infinite dimensional integrals useful to topology? Um, the answer is, again, a bit uh, complicated, but let me try to summarize it. So let me bring a knot. Here's a knot. Okay. Great. Uh, uh, well, actually, that's not a knot. Why not? Thinking what I'm showing you is a curve in R3. A knot is uh, a, 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 an equivalence class of such curves. So this is a curve. If I deform it a bit, it's still a curve, but it's considered the same knot. If I deform it some more, it's still a curve, but it's, con but, 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 but it's the same knot. So a knot is not a single curve, but an equivalent class of curves. Now, suppose you want quantities that are associated to knots. You want to be able to tell knots apart, so you need quantities uh, that would be computable from the knots and that you would use them to tell the knots apart. Okay? Now, it's very easy to compute quantities that are associated with curves. So if you have a curve, uh, you can measure its how much it bends. So the radius of, of, of the bending. Okay, again, these things have technical names, the curvature, maybe the torsion. There are various names for, for various quantities you can associate with curves. So, you know, I can look at the maximal curvature of this knot, of this curve, and the maximal curvature will be the place where it turns the most, and that's probably around here for this particular curve, around here, okay? Now, um, uh, but that quantity is a quantity which is associated with curves. It's a useless as a quantity for knots, it's useless as a quantity for knots because if we're talking about knots, you know, I could deform it and the maximal curvature could go somewhere else, could change, could grow, could shrink, could differ. Right. So the way to get quantities that are associated with knots rather than with curves is to integrate over the space of all geometries. So instead of picking the quantity for a specific geometric manifestation of the knot, you yep. integrate over the space of all geometries, and then the result will be a, a quantity associated with the knot. Unfortunately, the examples are very, very hard. So, you know, the, the, the famous example, the example that uh, uh, got Witten, uh, well, one of the examples that got Witten very, very famous in topology or among mathematicians is the so-called uh, Chern-Simons theory uh, or Chern-Simons quantity, which is um, uh, 
some uh, in itself some integral. So you integrate over R3. So the quantity itself is a finite dimensional integral, right? So you integrate over R3 something called the Chern-Simons form, uh, which is something called, which is A wedge dA plus two-thirds uh, A wedge A wedge A, whatever that is. But this is, you know, related to stuff appearing in second year uh, multivariable calculus in the most advanced versions. Okay, so wedge products and differential forms and exterior derivatives and stuff like that. Then you take this quantity and you multiply it by i, multiply by k, exponentiate it, multiply by another quantity, the so-called holonomy along the knot of a, whatever that is, so I'm throwing names because I really have no choice because giving the precise definition is a matter for a graduate class. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And this is the quantity that you associate with a geometric knot. And then to get an invariant of knots or to get a quantity associated with the knot itself, you integrate it over the space of all such A's, and I didn't I really tell you what these A's are, but it's an infinite dimensional space. So uh, I guess I haven't really answered your question by giving an example, but I just told you the examples are hard. Okay, anyway, um, well, they're hard, but they're exactly of the nature that uh, physics knows how to study, or that quantum field theory developed techniques to study, and so one can study it using quantum field theory techniques and get all sorts of, um, um, well, quantities relevant to not, relevant to not. The so-called Jones polynomial is an example, and then there are many other examples. Are there any relationships between knot theory and gravity, so general relativity, let's say? Um, so, uh, I'm not an expert. The answer is yes. Uh, but, uh, but don't ask me to detail it. As I told you, I've actually moved away from that subject. What got you interested in knot theory originally? This subject. So mainly you were interested in physics? Well, okay, I was a math undergrad. Uh, but then, uh, during my time as an undergrad and then a master's student in Tel Aviv University, I never finished the master's, it, I moved on to doing my PhD in, in Princeton, but during my time as a master's student in, in, um, in Tel Aviv, I got more and more interested in, in, in physics, and uh, there is just wonderful mathematics inside physics. So I got interested in physics and the fundamental question of physics, right? What are the basic laws of the universe? I mean, you can't ask a better question. So I got more and more interested in physics and decided to do my PhD in mathematical physics. And I ended up uh, working with Ed Witten, uh, who, who is a very famous uh, physicist or mathematical physicist or mathematician, depending whom you ask. And um, 
and originally my interest was in physics. Or, you know, I, I, my aim was to do things that was re were relevant to physics. Somehow that's not what happened. You know, at the end, you don't choose your career. Sort of the career leads you. Uh -huh. You know, so... Uh, I uh, wrote a thesis which was somewhere in between math and physics. What was it called? Uh, what was it called? Uh, Perturbative Aspects of the Chern-Simons Quantum Field Theory. And that's an approximate title because I don't exactly okay. remember. But then it turned out that that was relevant to something called finite type invariants. And I thought I had new things to say about finite type invariants, and that's completely a non-theoretic subject. So I, uh, I told myself I'll give myself a break from physics and write a paper or two on, on finite type invariants, and then come back to what I really care about. And that paper or two became 10 years, with several papers, many papers and many results. And, and uh, you know, you... Uh, and then a chance meeting led me to yet another subject, and you know... What was the other subject it led you to? Um, well, no, the next subject after finite type invariance was Hovanov homology. Anyway, you don't choose what you do. You, you know, you, you at most uh, try to steer it, but uh, it steers you much more than you steer it, like the subject. Do you have an intuitive explanation for people who, let's say they're at the second year level, what is a homology? <sighs> What's homology? It's a tough, a, a very tough uh, question uh, because it's many things, so, or it's, it's related to many things. And I could answer it in, in, in many levels. Um, you know, uh, let me let me give you a summary answer. Sure. Okay. So often in mathematics, there are two ways to describe objects. You can describe them implicitly by telling what equations they satisfy, or explicitly by constructing all of them. Let me give you the simplest example. So uh, consider the unit circle. Sorry, I kind of care about the points of the unit circle. So here is the unit circle in the xy plane, and here is a point xy. The implicit description of the circle, so the implicit is by writing an equation which the points have to satisfy. And everybody knows what the equation is. The equation is x squared minus, sorry, plus y squared minus 1 is equal to 0. Mm -hmm. Okay? Uh, but there is also an explicit description. And again, uh, I'm not sure which one is... Why the naming is such, but it, it doesn't really matter. Namely, I can construct all the points of the paper, of, of the circle. And the construction is you set x is equal to cosine of theta and y is equal to sine of theta. Okay? 
Now, this is the general, a, a general feature in mathematics that many right. things can be described, either be constructed, that's the explicit, or be defined by an equation. Now, if you uh, re restrict your attention to linear algebra, if you, 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 you do the same thing, but in linear algebra, then uh, the situation is that you have some space in the middle, maybe it's a vector space, and inside, inside that space, you want to describe things. Actually, I'm not sure why I'm drawing it curved because the curve, because if it's linear algebra, I should be drawing it straight. But anyway, you want to describe things. And there are two ways to describe them. One way is by saying these things, well, you construct a map into another space, and you say these things are the things in the kernel of this map. So I don't know what, let's call this map uh, phi, and these things are the kernel of phi. And then um, uh, uh, the, so this is the implicit description. This is you describe the things by an equation. And, and then there is also the explicit description. So you have yet another vector space and you have a map, let's call it, let's call it Psi. And you say the things here that are, well, the good things like the points of the circle are the image of Psi. So you mm. say these are the things that are the image of Psi. Uh -huh. Okay? And this corresponds to the explicit view. You construct the things. You present them as an image via some operation uh, coming from some, you know, maybe some smaller dimensional space. Okay. Uh, so, okay, here's a funny thing. So, if your construction is reasonable, then everything you construct solves the equations. In other words, everything in the image of Psi is contained in the kernel of Phi. So, uh, once you have a situation like this, you know that you're going to have that the image of Psi is contained in the kernel of Phi. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you're constructing the exact same things, then the image of Phi will be equal to the kernel of Phi, not just contained, okay? And then you will be saying that the situation is exact. Things got exactly the things that you've constructed are the things that you described by the equations. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you have equations defining something and you want to know, did I construct all the solutions? So sometimes this inclusion is strict. And then you want to measure by how much or how much did you fail? 
So how much did you not construct everything? And that's exactly the difference between the kernel of phi and the image of psi. And in linear algebra, the difference is quotient. So you take the quotient space. And this is the so-called homology. So somehow homology measures, uh, so this measures uh, uh, how good are your uh, constructions. Did you construct everything or did you leave some stuff out? Is the kernel, the implicit, the, the description, the, does it contain more things than, than you've constructed? So somehow homology measures how good are your constructions. And this is true in general. Uh, and, and, and then there are lots and lots and lots and lots of specific examples. Uh, and uh, to some extent, it's a bit of magic. I, I'm not sure I, I can give you a really good explanation why there are so many examples and why so much of mathematics uh, end up um, having close relationships with, with with, uh, with homology. Maybe this is a partial explanation. So basically you always want to measure how good is what you've done, so. Are you able to talk about what cohomology is and then homology's relationship to cohomology? Or is that a whole other can of worms? It's another can of worms, but um, in some sense, it's not interesting. In, in some philosophical sense, it's not interesting. So when I described cohomology, so, it's essentially the same. So the difference between a homology and cohomology more than anything else is a difference of conventions, whether your map goes from left to right or from right to left. It's, it's uh, uh, from this perspective, from this very far away and very imprecise perspective, there's really no difference. Professor, what do your average days look like? For example, do you wake up at the same time? Do you drink the same type of, do you drink coffee and it has to be this particular type of coffee? Do you eat a certain breakfast? What does it look like? Paint the drawer picture. Uh, well, I'm a lazy bum. Uh, and uh, I'm a believer in the... Um, you know, there was at some point a revolution, right? Before that, uh, people used to work seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day, or maybe with a short break on Sunday morning, depending which culture you came from, I suppose. And then at some point there was this uh, uh, workers' right uh, uh, revolution, and somehow the working week shrunk to uh, uh 40 hours a week or so, like five days of eight hours, hours a day. Right. And I'm essentially a believer in that. Uh, and furthermore, I'm a lazy bum. So during my uh, eight hours of work a day, five days a week, I take coffee breaks. I, uh, you know, browse the web. I cheat. Uh, um, but anyway, you know, I wake up at 6.30. I... Uh, 
exercise, take a shower, have breakfast, uh, check my email, do all sorts of unimportant things, then uh, around nine usually I start uh, working. I work until five or so. I'm sorry, I'm very dull. Um, and then I try to have fun for the rest of the day, whatever that may be, might be. During the pandemic, it, was, it is a bit harder. And then on the weekends, I try to go um, biking, hiking, puddling, uh, mostly things that don't have to do with work. I'm lying a little bit because occasionally there is a reason to work on the weekend and occasionally I do have a meeting with somebody like I have a, an Australian collaborator so often our meetings are in the evenings. So I mean I'm, I'm, I, I've given you an idealized uh, story. The truth is a little different, it's, you know, varies. When you're working from nine to five, how much of that time is spent thinking versus reading someone else's paper versus answering departmental emails and requests like what is work because work obviously for a professor you have to teach you also have to do research there's per perhaps 10. work is all of that and it depends on the season so basically when i teach two courses uh so you know i, I there's basically fall, spring, and summer, you know, fall uh, semester, spring semester, and summer, okay? Uh, in the fall and the spring, I teach either two or one course per semester. In the summer, I don't teach. So when I teach two courses per semester, that's almost all my attention. Almost everything I have uh, goes into that. Uh, and the rest goes into the regular meetings that I have to keep. So I have several graduate students that I work with, several collaborators, and I'm, I'm trying to keep weekly meetings with them. So there is a certain amount of like weekly meetings that I have to keep. When I teach one course, uh, I have some breathing room. And when I teach nothing, namely during the summer, then a, a higher proportion goes into research. Even in the summer, the proportion is not very high. Firstly, is your ideal situation to simply be a research professor? I know some professors don't, they treat teaching as an aside. They don't particularly like to do it. I'm curious about your case. Well, ideologically, I mean, I see myself as a teacher. Um, even the research, in some sense, is to support teaching. Even the research is so that I will remain in shape, and even more so, and that the community will remain in shape. So, you know, if, if, if I do research, I am able to uh, teach graduate students how to do research. And then they are uh, become uh, stronger mathematicians and can teach mathematics better. So, 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 so I even see research as mostly uh, supporting uh, teaching. So I definitely wouldn't say that I see everything as research, right? I mean, research, again, teaching is very significant.
Well, that's the theory. In practice, um, you know, waking up every morning and preparing your class and this marathon of teaching where you have to prepare your class, uh, you teach, you feel terrible about the things you missed during class. Uh, you don't even have time to digest it and you have to get ready for the next class already. So, uh, you know, it's very hard. I mean, people who haven't done that don't appreciate how, it, how hard it is. But it's emotionally very, very difficult. And uh, after a semester of teaching, uh, 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 you have no idea how much I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the break. So it's not like teaching is, you know, uh, when I teach, I want out. Do you find that to be true even if it's an undergraduate course? The reason I ask this is that I imagine as a professor, the undergraduate material you could teach with your pinky. You don't have to think much about it because, you, first of all, you've mastered it. Second, you've taught it for years and years. I do not teach the same class uh, for years. Like, I think the maximum I've ever repeated the class uh, was like three years. Uh, so it's not... But, but even then... Uh, you always have to prepare, uh, you always blunder, I always blunder, maybe perfect people don't, but right. you know, I always blunder uh, here and there and then I have to figure out ways out. I always find new things to do, new ways to do things, I always, um, even when I repeat, but, essentially, but most of the time I don't repeat. And the material is sometimes hard, you know, so, um, and even when it's not hard, uh, so, you know, on day one of a class, uh, you teach, of a linear algebra class, you teach the axioms of a vector space. I obviously know these axioms, right? I, I obviously... Um, when I see a vector space, I know it. When, I, when, when, when you give me a vector space, I know what to do with it. But that's not the same thing as getting up in front of a class and listing the axioms and making sure that you haven't forgotten one small axiom somewhere or that you phrase them perfectly so that even people who have never seen these things before will understand. Um, so, I mean, even day one of a very basic class uh, requires preparation. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. 
No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. We're going to talk about mathematical techniques. In fact, I believe when we emailed, you said you don't like the emphasis on theorems and proofs. You like, well, we can, we can talk about that later. As for teaching techniques... I'm curious, what have you gleaned? What have you found to be productive and perhaps even some behaviors you find to be unproductive that you see other people, other teachers making the mistake of doing? I mean, there is so much. Uh, you know, starting from, com you know, completely silly things like make sure that you're heard. Right, if the classroom is large and you speak without a microphone, uh, people in the back are not going to hear you and then they're not going to follow. Uh, make sure that you can be seen. So if you write with a tiny, you know, if you write tiny letters with a faded chalk, uh, people can't read what you write. Uh, the class is a failure no matter what you say. And then there are uh, higher level things and basically everything should be motivated. So, you know, I mentioned the first class of a linear, the first class uh, in a linear algebra course. Okay, so you can give by, uh, you can give by this class by saying, uh, you can start this class by saying, let F be a field. Uh, a set V is called a vector space if, 
and then you can write property, you know, operations and properties, and you know, you write item number one to item number 15, where 15 is, I don't know, some axioms like alpha times beta times a vector, you, you know, whatever. So yes, one of the axioms of a vector field, okay, of a vector, sorry, a vector space. Uh, and then the question arises, why and who cares? Right, right. Okay, so if you start your class this way, people aren't going to like it. So before this, there has to be a, a little section, I don't know, here, where you explain, um, well, for such and such reasons, we care about vector spaces. So there has to be motivation first. Okay? And, uh, and that's true not only in the first class of the first um, uh, of, of a linear algebra course, it's true in every class. When, whenever you say something, there has to be a reason and the people who, um, uh, who are listening to you uh, should know that you've thought about it, should know that, you, that you're telling them these things for a reason, okay? And uh, that's often omitted. It's often too easy to just follow the definitions and the theorems and never say what they're good for. And, um, and not only you should say these things, you should say them up front. Likewise, when you write a proof, uh, it's often easy to, well, to, to, so, I mean, often there is a picture behind a proof. The proof is telling some story and you, and you want the picture of that story in the minds of the students. But, 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 but it's often too easy to reduce it to a list of formulas or a list of statements. So a higher level thing is to make sure that everything is motivated. What else? What's another higher level aspect of teaching that you find is a common mistake among the teachers that you see? Um... I think maybe this is the biggest, not showing the motivation clearly enough. And by the way, uh, that's part of the reason why research is a necessary part of teaching. Because uh, you have to know the motivation. You know, you can say, Vector spaces are a great thing unless you've actually worked with them, unless you've actually seen them used. So maybe vector spaces are good and are easy enough so that you can, um, uh, um, you know, by third year you understand why you, why you learned about them in first year. Uh, but if you want to be able to say something intelligent about homology, you have to have used it. The only way to use it is in research. So, uh, uh, 
So that's what I meant by you have to be in shape. Being in shape also means remember what, what can be done with these things. Do you find that you're more creative as you get older or that your creativity peaked at a certain age? I, I, you, you know, I, I, I wish I could answer. The truth is that I don't really remember. You know, I, I mean, it's very hard to remember myself as, at, at any other age. So, I mean, certainly um, I have matured. So the little I can remember from 20 or 30 years ago um, is, is, is that I have matured, okay? Uh, I'm more systematic, perhaps, um, than I was. Uh, Am I smarter? Am I more creative? Am I stupider? Am I less creative? I'm not sure. What do you mean when you say you're more systematic now? Can you give an example of how you would look at a certain problem now or solve it versus 20 years prior? And also a sub question, do you see being systematic as a good thing or do you see there being innovation in being disorganized or creativity embedded there? No, systematic is generally better. So I used to be um, uh, much more into the low-hanging fruits. So, uh, and I was lucky that I found some. Uh, but, um, but basically I'd, I'd, uh, like wait for opportunities and, and then use them. Okay. Uh, and, uh, now it's much more, I have a long-term goal. Uh, you know, I want uh, a theory of something. You know, your 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 uh, podcast is a theory of everything, right? I just want a theory of something. So I want a theory of something because I I feel for various reasons that it ought to be there, and then I um, work very hard on well, very hard to my standards. I already admitted being a bum. So, um, you know, uh, I, I worked at least for a long time uh, trying to find that theory. You know, even, as a, even, even at, a very, at, at a much lower level. Uh, so I think when I was first year student, uh, you know, so, you know, math theorems and proofs were pressed into my brain was essentially an external process, right? So I went to classes and people pushed theorems into my brain. And um, some of them seemed like complete formalities, like 
uh, a sequence of deductions uh, that I could have that I could memorize and I could verify, uh, but were essentially created by aliens. You know, I, I had no idea how they came to be. Right. And some theorems uh, immediately uh, became a picture. I immediately understood uh, uh, that, that, that the proof describes a certain geometric reality. Okay, describe... I, I, I could see the intuition behind the proof. It's not always geometric, though. It's just you see the not intuition. Not necessarily geometric. I mean, but I could see somehow the motivation. The, 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 I, I could imagine how the proof was discovered. I see. I, I, I would get the feeling that I understood the proof. And there, and, and, the, and there was essentially a dichotomy. Some, picture, some proofs or some concept were of that type, made by aliens and pushed into my brain by professors, and other um, uh, concepts, theorems, proofs, whatever, were clearly intuitive and made sense, and I understood them. Uh, and that was it. That was the world. There was this and there were those. And then sometime later, in second year, I actually did my BA very, very, very quickly. So uh, basically, I, I did it in essentially two years. So when I say second year, you should compare it maybe with year three and four of uh, most students. So somewhere later, in, late in my studies, I realized that if I think harder about the theorems that, uh, or, or the concepts that appeared to be alien, then sooner or later, I see the picture behind them. Sooner or later, I realize uh, that I, I'm able to move them to the other class, the class of things that are motivated and, 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 um, and understand it. And, and understood. And, and, and then I became systematic about it. So every time I learn something new, I may learn it from a book that, that describes it as a formula. Okay, and then I'll struggle to see the intuition behind the formula. And so even at that level, it's, it's something that took learning. It, it wasn't, um, again, when I got to the university, I, you know, when I, when I was in first year, I took classes and I got good, good grades in, 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 in all of them. Um, and nevertheless, uh, there was a point where, where things became better, where, where I realized I can actually understand everything and not just repeat everything. And that came later. What does that process of finding the intuition behind, let's say, a formula that before you previously simply had to memorize as handed down from the gods or the aliens, what does that process look like, the process of finding the intuition? Does it look like, I'm sure it's a variety of these, but does it majorly look like you 
copy it down with the pen and paper precisely, and then you draw arrows and you say, okay, so what's an example of this? What's a counter example of this? Or is it you go on a bike ride and you keep thinking about it? What does that process look like? Perhaps it would be edifying if you took a specific example, but if you can't, then just give the broad strokes. Uh, you know, what, it, what does it look like from the outside? From the outside, it looks like I'm sitting on my chair and staring into, the, into infinity, right? Or uh, sitting on my balcony and looking at the view. Uh, what does it look like inside? It's very hard to answer without without going through specific examples and the specific examples are far too complex. I don't know if they are far too complex, but they fit in a math class. And the other thing is um, you will never see these examples in my classes because when I teach something, I try to motivate it. Okay, uh, so you will not see the alternative. Okay, you will see the motivated way of explaining uh, uh, the implicit function theorem or the uh, change of variables formula for multi-dimensional uh, integrals. Right, you'll see the motivated form. You will not see it. Um, I will not be showing you the unmotivated formulas. For you, much of the time when it's difficult for you to understand a proof or a theorem or a concept, is it most of the time because it was unmotivated? Well, the intuition is not explained often. So in textbooks, uh, often the intuition is not explained. Now, some intuition is just getting used to the concepts. So sometimes intuition is not, is not um, mm -hmm. it's just playing around until you're used to it. You know, uh, you've just landed in a foreign city. You've just landed in Athens. Uh, your hotel is two kilometers from the Acropolis. Uh, you got there at night, you wake up in the morning, you want to go to the Acropolis. Uh, you uh, punch Acropolis into Google Maps and Google Maps tells you, uh, you know, go left, go right, go straight, go left, go right, and here's the Acro Acropolis, okay? You follow the instructions. You didn't learn Athens. You've learned the way to the Acropolis. Uh, to learn Athens, uh, in the afternoon after the Acropolis, you have to wander around 
uh, and then you have to continue wandering around for the next two weeks. And then maybe you're starting to have a grasp of what Athens is. So there is similar, there is something similar in, in mathematics, okay, or, or in science, or in fact in every field of learning, okay, I mean, but in mathematics, you know, um, uh, you don't uh, learn, I mean, if you learn a proof of something, if, you've le if you learn the proof of the most interesting result, result in a certain field, you haven't learned the field, okay? You've just learned, and especially if you, if you follow the directions by, by somebody else, okay? The learning happens if you wander around later. And in a way, you have to do it on your own, right? This, this wandering around. So wandering around in mathematics means you experiment, you change the conditions, you... You ask yourself, what if you remove, what if you add conditions, what, what happens if you look at analogous situations? Uh, but these things, um, well, so I mean, like part of tourism you do with a tour guide and, part of, and, and, and a part you have to do on your own. On your own. And... Um, Uh, so, 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 so some part of uh, being systematic, if you wish, is doing this on my own thing in a systematic way. Okay, this realization that I can't just jump into a topic by following somebody's guidance. I, 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 I must sit down and think and ask myself many, 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 many more questions and go on side tracks and until it, and, until it's until eventually I'm comfortable now in this example let me let me see if I'm understanding it correctly let's say Athens so Athens is the city and then you have the Acropolis which is a landmark so that's almost like a landmark theorem and then the directions are the proof and the steps to get there would you say and you're saying the learning comes from the wandering would you say that when you first land in Athens you should wander or should you learn the major landmarks and the directions to get there, perhaps forgetting the directions? You just get yourself there so that you see what the landmarks are like later you wander. The analogy would be you learn the major theorems and then later you try and get the intuition by playing around with them, or do you play from the get-go? I mean, there has to be a bit of both. Uh, basically, you know, if you land in Athens and start wandering randomly, you end up, you may end up wandering randomly in a completely uninteresting direction plus there is a fear factor and you know you may fear the bad neighborhoods interesting but 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 there actually is an analog an analogy in mathematics or it, it no it's not, i mean you fear doing certain things and the guidance can help you overcome the fear but maybe fear is not the right way. I mean, think that you have to explore Athens when, when it's dark. Okay, so you simply don't know which way to go. You just land. You know, I tell you, think about vector spaces. You have no idea what good questions to ask are. What are the good questions to ask? Uh, and um, um, so you need guidance. 
or else you will be stuck in one neighborhood and never realize that there is more than that. But you know, after the guidance took you from here to there, you have to uh, uh, go back and explore and explore more and explore more and until, you, until it's a solid and not just a single path. So you have to do your own Feynman path and to grow over the space of mathematical ideas. There is a bit of that, yes. What's your greatest strength as a mathematician or some of your strengths? Who says I have strengths? What's your greatest weakness? I'm a lazy bum. Are you being modest when you say that? Because I imagine someone who has an accelerated degree, two-year degree that should ordinarily take four years, it's not as if you spend the majority of your time playing video games and, and being unindustrious. Oh, you'll be surprised. Uh, I mean, of course, I didn't play video games. I mean, that was back in the 80s. Uh, you know, video, video games came later. Uh, but uh, I definitely killed a lot of time. So who are you comparing yourself to when you say that you're slothful? Gee, I compare, I compare myself to who I want to be. Uh, anyway, what are my strengths? Uh, I think I'm decently good at explaining things to others. Um, often that involves thinking about them. I mean, explaining is not just uh, reproducing what you've heard somewhere else. I mean, it's, it's first of all being creative about these things. Um, but you know, uh, ask the students, ask the people who listen to me in lectures when I give research lectures. Um, it's very hard to, uh, you know, there's a famous uh, story about Einstein that um, uh, somebody complained to Einstein about his problems with math. And the reference was to high school math. Like, I never got high school math. And Einstein said, let me assure you that my math problems are way bigger. Uh, so, uh, sort of... Meaning what? What did he mean by that? You know... Einstein spent all his life struggling with mathematics, not just high school time. Okay, so in a similar way, uh, gee, I'm, I'm uh, sorry, I mean, now it might sound like I made some analogy which I don't, I'm not making. I understand, trust me. Uh, but, but still, um, you know, I like to implement... I like to compute things, implement them on the computer, which means that I spend a lot of time programming the concepts I work on, turning them into running programs. You could say it's my strength, 
But when I look at it, all I see is that I'm struggling and struggling and struggling and failing. And here and then, here and there, there is a minor success, which gets superseded a little bit later by somebody else. So, um, yeah, maybe one of my strengths is, is the ability to implement things, to turn, to, to, to actually, you know, turn mathematical concepts into running programs. Uh, but it's also one of the things that, that, that keeps me depressed uh, so much of my time. Some people who are watching this, they may be discouraged because they, were, they weren't particularly great at high school mathematics, or some people may have struggled during their undergrad. What advice do you have for those people if they want to continue to learn mathematics or physics at a graduate, perhaps even larger than graduate, PhD level? Do they just continue plugging away and not feel discouraged because they feel like an imbecile on a daily basis? What advice do you have for them? There is chug along and there is realize when it's not working. And I hate to tell you that I don't know. I mean, I can't give you a, 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 a clear recipe to decide which one it is. Um, different people are different. Some people struggle and struggle and struggle until they succeed. Sometimes some people don't. Uh, or they struggle and struggle and struggle and don't succeed. Um, you get uh, feedback. I mean, some people depend on daily feedback. Some people can live with a feedback, with a bit of feedback once a year. I, I'm not sure I have a, a clear answer. What did you learn from Ed Witten with respect to mathematical techniques or meta-mathematical, so how you should think about math or physics? Well, I learned specific mathematics from him, right? So, you know, I learned, like many other people, I learned this formula from him, right? And how to read it and how to use, use it, interpret it, work with it, right? Do things with it. Uh, but I learned many other specific things with him, from him. Um... I learned from him, he's actually, um, I mean, like, people think of him as a great um, researcher, but he's also a great expositor. So, uh, uh, when you come to his lectures, uh, he is uh, able to make even very complicated things appear simple. Uh, the problem is that often you will not see that because he's turning the hyper-complicated into merely complicated. Uh, so, 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 so you don't automatically realize uh, what a great uh, exposition uh, work he had done. 
And I, I think I learned, well, I don't know if I learned that from him, but I strive to learn that from him. Um, and then in other ways, I, there are senses in which I didn't learn anything from him. Namely, uh, he is so much more talented. There's just no way of, no other way of saying it. The guy is smart. The guy is extremely productive. Uh, if you try to imitate his brilliance, you'll fail. At least I failed. Uh, if you try to imitate his productivity, you'll just be disappointed. So, um, in, in some ways, I haven't learned. There are certain things I haven't learned from him, and I just simply couldn't. Do you mind describing your relationship with Eric Weinstein? When I was speaking to Eric, he said that you acted as a de facto supervisor to him because Raoul Bott wasn't particularly, although it was officially his supervisor, he didn't act as the supervisor for whatever reason. It was a strange relationship. I don't understand it. And I'm curious, what do you think he means when he says that you acted as the supervisor? You gave him advice or? I don't think it's correct. It's more like a coach or, you know, I, I mean, um, so Eric, uh, Eric was very unbalanced and he still is unbalanced, and I don't mean emotionally unbalanced, I mean uh, he has great talents in certain directions and fear of others. And there are certain things that one has to do, certain type of computations, certain type of writing, Basically, he has fear of turning his, um, his uh, theories too concrete. Uh, so, um, uh, and, and that's part of the reason why he had difficulty uh, with Raoul Bott and with, um, basically with the normal system in Harvard. And um, uh, my role was to help him pick something concrete out of his um, big theories and, and, and push it enough so that it became a thesis. Uh, Yeah, I also helped him with some computations, you know, I, you know, at the end of the day, there was some, like, so, so his, his, you know, big theories lead to something very concrete and specific, which was a tiny part of the big theories, but we extracted that tiny part and made it uh, more concrete. And at the end, it became a question, you know, some big matrix, 500 by 500 or whatever it was, uh, is it positive definite or not? And I help him. Uh, I helped him decide that. And that was decided by compute by a computer. Like you ended up programming it. That one. That one was decided by computer. So we just 
but 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 that's the kind of thing he would have never done on on his own because um he has this fear of uh in a way it's a fear of testing your theories because they might fail but in another way it's just uh, inability he never learned how to do it he never got good at um at turning the very abstract into concrete um so yes yeah, so that was my role have you read his recent geometric unity papers or heard about geometric unity at all? I've heard a tiny bit about it. I have not read it. I'm not in a position to comment. You talked about it's difficult to make a concrete ver or take something concrete from a theory, at least in his case. Do you mind giving an example of his strengths or, or, some, or an example of a brilliance of his that you saw? He intimately knows um, uh, the small groups and their representations. Uh, and how they interact with each other. Uh, so... Uh, the small groups, like the classical groups, or what do you mean when you say the small group? Okay, what I mean by the small is, um, so you know, uh, there are several families of, of so-called symmetry groups. Okay, so there are uh, uh, S-U-N and S- uh, and S-O-N and S-P-N and then there are a few sporadic ones. There is uh, uh, G2 and F4 and E6 and E7 and E8, and it doesn't go beyond 8. Uh, and all of these, so these are abstract things, these are groups. Uh, they, they have so-called representation theory. So, uh, each one of them can be represent can be written as a group of matrices, can be realized within the world of matrices, but in many ways. So Eric uh, intimately knows. Um, uh, Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone 
of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. These groups and the representations and how they sit inside each other for small values of N and, well, for all of those sporadic ones, which are all small. And there are symmetries and there are so-called outer symmetries. I mean, he, he knows all about uh, these things. Uh, now, uh, this is relevant to physics because, uh, you know, electroweak theory is somehow about SU2 and... Uh, uh, the grand unified theory, so a strong and electroweak, is somehow about SU3, or uh, so. Uh, no, 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 I have it wrong. Sorry, electromagnetism is, well, electromagnetism is U1, and then, you know, I, as I yeah, told you, I, I, I actually have not thought about these things for many, many years. So I could be saying things wrong. But, yeah. but his strength is that he knows these things really, really, really well. Uh, or one of his strengths is, is that he knows these things really, really, really well. Earlier when we were talking about particle physics, well, not theory, you mentioned that for every knot, there's a corresponding physics story of particles dancing and so on. Is the opposite true? So does the arrow go in the other direction as well? For every particle interaction, is there a corresponding knot? For every particle interaction of a specific type in three-dimensional space, yes. But uh, but you have to be very specific. You have to be you, you have to specialize a great deal. Physics mostly happens in four-dimensional space. If this can be easily explained, why is it not simple to just extend the three dimensions to four dimensions and and come up with answers much like in vector in we're talking about vector spaces, it's trivial to go from R3 to R4. The same theorems apply. Okay, so so the answer is um are there's first of all certain things do extend. So um you know, if not theory is to some extent about dance, the dancing of points in two-dimensional space. So, you know, he, 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 here is a, a, a very rough uh, 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 kind of correspondence, okay? So, uh, not theory or ordinary knots uh, is roughly about one-dimensional things or curves or whatever in three-dimensional space. And as I mentioned before, it can be um, 
interpreted as points dancing in two-dimensional space. So points are zero-dimensional, so, uh, uh, so you can interpret knot theory as zero-dimensional things, right? A single point is a zero-dimensional thing. So it's zero-dimensional things dancing in a two-dimensional space. Now, you can lift this one dimension up. So you can say, uh, let's, uh, uh, instead of uh, uh, zero-dimensional things dancing in R2, you can think of one-dimensional things dancing in uh, R4. And one-dimensional things dancing in R4 somehow correspond by the same correspondence, looking at uh, sections, uh, they somehow correspond to two-dimensional knots, so two-dimensional things are uh, noted in R4. Now you can ask, now what exactly are one-dimensional dancing, sorry, not R4, I, I wanted to add one. This is in R2, adding one, you get R3. Sorry. So one-dimensional okay. thing dancing in R3. Now you can ask yourself, what are one-dimensional things dancing in R3? And fortunately, I'm ready for that. So here, are, here is a one-dimensional thing. And here is another one. And uh, right, this is a loop. It's a one-dimensional thing. That's another one. It's a loop. It's a one-dimensional thing. And they can dance around. They can fly in R3 and they can fly in interesting ways that don't exist one dimension less. Namely, they can fly through each other. Okay? So, yes, there is a theory of one-dimensional things dancing in R3, and it corresponds to a theory of two-dimensional spaces noted inside four-dimensional space. So, to some extent, the answer to your question is, yes, there is higher, there are higher-dimensional analogs of knot theory. It turns out that uh, some features are different. It turns out that in some ways, uh, and, and they're actually qualitatively, uh, sort of the theory of knots in one day, so, 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 you know, unlike um, vector spaces, so vector spaces, you kind of, once you learn R3, R4, you've learned R to the 50. Okay, but, but, but here there are qualitative differences. So, uh, so some things from the study here translate to things here and vice versa, but not everything. So myself, I've spent most of my time actually on these two. Okay. Uh, but then there is higher, there is even higher stuff. 
Um, by the way, so, you know, um, linear algebra, uh, when you take a first class in linear algebra and more, maybe also a second class in linear algebra, you get this impression that uh, everything is the same in all dimensions. Yeah. But that's not true. Even in linear algebra? Even in linear algebra. So, well, not quite linear algebra, but in algebra. Okay? So, you know, there is something called uh, the real numbers. And then you can add i, add i, and you get the complex numbers. And then uh, you can say, let's add uh, j and k as well. And you get uh, the so-called uh, quaternions. But the quaternions are different than the complex numbers in that this is a commutative ring and this is a non-commutative ring. And then you can add, gee, I forgot what's the standard name for what you add. So I don't know, add uh, n, n standard for stands for nameless because I forgot the name. Right. And, and you get octanions and the octanions are no longer even associative. So it's still sort of a ring, namely right, it right, has right, a multiplication, right. but it's not even associative. And then the process ends. There is just nothing beyond that. You can't continue. Uh, so, uh, so even in linear algebra, so that's not quite, well, I don't know, even in basic algebra. Not all dimensions are the same. One is not the same as two, is not the same as four, is not the same as eight, and not the same as 16, where things no longer exist. Uh, so, uh, so it's just not true that um, things are independent of the dimension. It's only, they're only independent of the dimension in the first two years of, uh, of, of, of undergrad. Now, in this example, we're going to different spaces by adding one or by adding whatever extra variables there are there. In the previous example, we're extending R4 to R5 or Rn to N plus M. So we're in the same space in a sense, except adding an extra dimension. So what's an example that holds for R3? Or actually, sorry, let's make this even simpler. What's an example that holds for R2, but doesn't hold for R3? Or you can say R3 to R4. Like what's an example of a quantity that drastically changes as soon as you go to R4 and becomes extremely complicated, but in R3, it's trivial. The motion of points is fundamentally different in two dimensions versus in three dimensions. So let me explain. So, uh, right, suppose you have two points, A and B, in two dimensions, and you want them to trade places by moving. Okay, there are two basic ways they can do it. They can trade place by uh, B going above A, or they can trade places 
uh, in some sort of the opposite way by A going above B. So A will go to here and B will go, sorry, A will go, A will go take the upper root and B take the, the lower root. These are, these two ways are somehow, they're somehow fundamentally distinct. Uh, and you know, to use technical language, you cannot homotop this way to that way. They're not homotopic. You cannot continuously deform this way of moving to that way of moving. But in R3, that's not true anymore. So in R3, points can trade places in only one way. So uh, let me uh, find two points for you. So uh, I suppose, uh, well, they're not points, but they're close to points. So here is uh, red and blue. So in R3, they can trade places going this way, or they can trade places going that way. But there are many other ways they can trade places. They can trade places by going that way or that way. And um, in a sense, all of these trading places ways are equivalent to each other. Because if you trade places, well, if the two points trade places, they span a circle, right? So basically, let me use this, right? So, you know, they span a circle by, uh, I wish I had a third hand, maybe I use my... Sure, 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 sure. Okay, they go like that, okay? Yeah. That spans a circle. And the other way of spanning a circle is by going the other way around the same di around the same sorry circle but now i can flip that circle over and that homotops that deforms one way of trading places to the other way of trading places so in r3 so in r2 there are two distinct sorry this yeah can spell uh, there are two uh, distinct ways of uh, trading uh, places. And in fact, two are easy, they're actually a little bit more. But anyway, in R3, so if you're talking about three-dimensional space, and you have uh, two points in the three-dimensional space, there is only one way or one or all way or let no let me say different let me say differently uh all ways of trading places all ways of trading uh places are equivalent and again the basic the basic point is that a way of trading places is a circle Right, right, one point goes along one arc and the other point goes over the other arc. And you can switch from one place of uh, trading place, one way of trading places to the other by flipping the circle. You can't do it if you're only in the plane. Um, 
since trading places is actually fundamental, it makes, uh, uh, but by the way, it's also fundamental in physics. So, you know, you, 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 know, you, you, you might have heard of uh, bosons and fermions and how they behave with respect to trading places. And then there are anions that behave yet differently uh, with respect to trading places. So basically trading places or how things behave under trading places is a fundamental thing and it's different. It's, it's different in two dimensions than in three. Right. Likewise, there are things that are different between three dimensions and four. And, and so it's actually this kind of uh, myth or not myth, but this, um, the thing that you learn in first and second year that uh, Rn is the same Rn no matter what n is, is not actually true. Have you heard of the hard problem of consciousness? I have not heard it in this language, namely... No, 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 it has nothing to do with what's written on the board. Or maybe it does, but not as far as I see. This is sort of a clear philosophical problem, right? But uh, with the added prefix, the and it's clearly hard. But, but, but as a phrase, the hard problem of consciousness, I don't know what you're talking about. There's only one consciousness that I need to explain, and it's my own. Right? From my perspective, you're not conscious. Right? You just react to, to, to things that I do. You know, if I, you know, if I tell you... Uh, you're stupid, you get angry at me. If I give you a compliment, you get happy. But these are all, I, I don't see consciousness here. Okay, I, so there's only one consciousness that I have to explain and only one person that I have to explain it to and it's myself. Um, but anyway, Having said that, um, yeah, I'll keep the rest private. What keeps you up at night? Different things on different days. Whether she loves me or not. Uh, whether I can uh, complete the computer program I'm writing or not, or why is it not written, my classes for tomorrow, the theorem I don't know how to, have no clue how to prove, the state of the world, uh, COVID, I don't know, different things at different times. Is there a through line? So let's say one that you've been thinking about for 15 years or more. You know, I'm politically aware and always been, have always been. So, uh, uh, you know, how to make the world a better place. Uh, but, but of course, that's a subjective thing. What, what is better to me may or may not be the same as what is better to you. So in a way, when I'm saying 
uh, how to make a better the world a better place. It's more like how to make the world more like uh, uh, how would how I would like it to be. Um, Yeah, so I think about it a lot and mostly my conclusion is that there's nothing I can do or there is much I can do. My powers are limited. What direction would you like math research to head? I think I mentioned that I like computation. Um... And I actually, uh, so I mean, it's not the only thing of value in mathematics, right? There are things in mathematics with great philosophical value, uh, regardless of whether they're computable or not. Uh, but, uh, uh, but those parts of mathematics that can be computed uh, are often not. And often uh, people uh, just don't care about computations. They pretend that, well, they think of computation as something, as a technical thing to, to, to leave for their graduate students. Uh, and I see it as, as a much more integral part of the work. Uh, so if I were to change, I would, um, I, I, I would make computation a bigger part. Computation in the sense of implementation on the computer, not in the sense of writing by hand. Uh, I would make it a much bigger part and I would, um, uh, and that happens at many levels. So when you teach a class in linear algebra, uh, you teach about uh, how to compute the determinant. Well, uh, along with it, there should be a computer program to compute, compute the determinant. And, should, and there should be a realization that uh, there are maybe two formulas for the determinant, and one of them is way better than the other uh, if you try to implement it. Uh, so um, I would emphasize computation much more. Um, yeah, maybe that would be the main change. Do you have a philosophy of math? So, for example, there's Platonism and formalism. If anything, I would be an ultra-finitist. So, uh, but it's much more graded than that. So, you know, there is a hierarchy of, um, of, complexities of things or, or, or sizes of things in mathematics. So, you know, people in set theory and logic and, you know, talk about large cardinal axioms uh, and uh, then there are 
parts of mathematics that have to do with uncountable or bigger than uncountable. And then there are infinite parts. And then there are just infinite without being uncountable, right? And just countable, say. And then there are parts of mathematics that are um, finite but huge. Uh, so, you know, Ramsey theory, uh, you have, uh, you know, you prove that if a graph is large enough, then it has properties, certain properties. But large enough means really, 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 really huge, bigger than the number of atoms in the universe. Uh, and then there are uh, you know, parts of mathematics uh, that happens where uh, the numbers are uh, between 10 to the 6 and 10 to the 12. I don't know what a computer can do in a fraction of a second to what a computer can do in an hour. Okay? And, you know, maybe you can go a little bit beyond to 10 to the 16. I don't know. 10 to the 15. I don't know. Okay? So there is this whole grading, and to me, the bigger things are, the less important they are. Uh, and uh, because they're farther away from our everyday experience. So they may have philosophical value, and some of them do. So I don't want to completely say anything about large cardinals is not interesting or anything about infinity is not interesting but the bar is higher for something that genuinely use, uses infinity to be interesting the bar is higher than if the thing is uh, in, this, in the range of sizes that we can actually hold in our hands. So that's what I mean by an ultra-finitist. I mean, sort of the, or, or, or so this is a form, so an ultra-finitist would say the only numbers that exist are the numbers I could count to. And maybe by uh, extension that my computer could count to. So maybe my computer can count up to this number, but 10 to the 100 does not exist in some sense because my computer will never be able to count there. Okay, we'll never be able to get there. So I'm not an ex extreme. I would say sometimes there is value to this one too. And sometimes there is even value to infinity. And sometimes there is even value to the bigger form of infinity. But the bar has to be higher. Uh, the the, the, the the philosophical value bar has to be higher the bigger the, the size is. These things are always interesting. These things are interesting only on special circumstances. Now, I'm not sure, do you classify yourself as a pure mathematician? Definitely. Okay, so for a pure mathematician who seemingly doesn't care about reality, it's supposed to be discontinued. Again, the valuable math is the math that I, that I can, or the more valuable math, is the math that I can turn into a computer program.
it's still pure math in the sense that I'm lo not looking for an immediate or a specific application. Uh, but both from the application perspective and from the pedagogical perspective, I still prefer the, map that, the math that can be implemented because the math that can be implemented, even if I'm not looking for an immediate application, is the, is the math that has a higher chance of being applied. Because in the application, you'll end up computing. And also, from the teaching perspective, from the pedagogical perspective, uh, there is more value to the education you give if it comes with implementation because you want your students to be able to implement the things that they learn. Yes, sorry, what were you asking? Oh, I was saying you ultimately care about the practical aspect of math even though you're operating in pure mathematics? Ultimately, yes, though possibly very indirectly. So maybe the way the math I'm doing or maybe the, maybe the way I care is in that the pure math I'm doing uh, enables me to teach graduate students who will then become college instructors and their students will be able to uh, 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 actually implement the mathematics they're, they're learning. So, I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to be immediate and direct. But yes, I do care about how at the end it gets applied or how at the end it, it, it becomes applicable. Great. Now we just have some audience questions I asked people beforehand. What are some questions you have for Professor Jor Barnetton? So the scientific mystical philosopher, that's the username, he wants to know, he or she wants to know, why the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics? Sorry, why is mathematics unreasonably effective? Gee, I don't know, ask, ask God. Uh, she may or may not be able to give you an answer. Um, yeah, it's weird. We live in a predictable universe. Uh, right, when we throw something up in the air, it always uh, shows this, you know, goes through the same trajectory. Uh, nearly, I don't know. I mean, that's a miracle. Roman Gekwad wants to know, have you ever had your IQ scored? And if not, what do you believe it is? No clue. Uh, and also, you know, IQ scores are very limited in many ways, are very, uh, you know, are, you know, there is a fun story uh, uh, that I, I've never ver verified it, but I heard it, okay? that um, uh, uh, 
when the people who introduced IQ tests uh, first introduced them, they ran them on test subjects, and uh, uh, the, the women, the females, got higher scores than the men. Uh, that was back in the 50s, or I don't know exactly when, but that was a long time ago. They figured, hey, that's impossible. Uh, and then they tweaked the tests a, a bit. They changed the nature of the questions. They asked them differently until they finally were able to, uh, to make um, uh, men uh, equal or maybe better, I don't know, than women. And again, this is true to a certain system of education in a certain time, right? Men and women did not receive the same education. Uh, it would have been easy to, di to, to distinguish because they came, they, they, their backgrounds were different. Uh, so you could arrange uh, such things, okay? Uh, uh, that's about the value of IQ, of, of, of IQ scores, okay? They were, I mean, to some extent they measured something, to some extent they were cooked to measure whatever people wanted them to measure, um, not much to learn from these measurements. Tori Cole has a question. What do you think of biology slash psychology slash philosophy? I think they're fun. I think they're foundational to understanding myself and therefore my experience of the universe. Do you think you would gain much of an understanding of an exploration from those fields to mathematics? Again, biology. Biology, psychology, and philosophy. I mean, they're all interesting fields. I, I'm not sure what more to say, you know? Do you think there are insights there that if you were to read a biology book, a psychology book, perhaps a philosophy book, do you think there are insights to be gleaned from there that you can then apply to mathematics? There are connections here and there. Um, much of mathematics is independent of that. Uh, so, obviously, biology motivates parts of mathematics. So, parts of mathematics uh, you know, are about modeling biological systems. Uh, when we compute the Fibonacci numbers, we give examples of uh, the rep reproduction rules of rabbits, okay? Uh, and, and then there is much more like that. And, and then, um, likewise for psychology, uh, but and likewise, and, 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 and of course philosophy, so you know, there are bits of mathematics of great philosophical value. So, you know, Gedel's theorem says uh, 
that there are all, there will always be things we do not we will not know okay or said dif or, or differently I know there is no algorithm to decide uh, to find the proofs of theorems uh, these things have philosophical value okay uh, for most mathematicians it's not a day-to-day -day working relationship. My own mathematics benefits very little, if any, from, the, from contact with biology, uh, philosophy, and uh, psychology. Okay, Phil Thomas wants to know what led him, what led you, professor, to the field of mathematics and is your field something you think virtually anyone can learn? What led me there? You know, it's a question about my life story, right? So what led me there is essential is is um A sequence of uh, coincidences and misunderstandings. I don't know a, a, a number of things, but so um, to some extent, I, to some extent, I was good at that, and that pushed me to do more of it. Uh, and that's a very common answer for very many things, right? People tend to do what they're good at. Misunderstandings? You said misunderstandings as well? Yes, to some extent, uh, I misunderstood math. So, you know, there, there was a time that I really liked uh, computers and electronics. And I, uh, at some point, r realized that there is a lot of kind of hard work in it. So, uh, uh, writing a computer program is very hard. You have to write hundreds of lines of code and then uh, debug them and they, whatever. And similarly for electronics, right? Uh, you have to place those transistors on the board and solder them together and uh, solder them together and, uh, and you always get it wrong. And you know, there is a lot of hard work where mathematics is so much easier. All you have to do is to prove theorems. That was a complete misunderstanding. I mean, I thought it was like much purer. Uh, I didn't, at, at the time, I didn't realize how much hard work is involved. So in some sense, I got, there, I got to mathematics by misunderstanding, by being lazy and not realizing that um, I'm, I'm getting trapped into, in, into a place where laziness is, is, not, it is, it is, is not always enough. And also, at the end, I ended up liking those parts that I first thought I was going away from, namely computation. So I ended up, I mean, computation to me was like a childhood thing and a later acquired taste. There was a period in between when, in between when I thought I was pure, I would never compute anything. Um, Right, what else? Did I answer or did I miss? There was a second part to the question. Do you believe that your field, either the field of mathematics or your subfield, the one that you're working in currently, do you feel that your field is something that virtually anyone can learn? 
No. Uh, so, uh, some, uh, some amount of mathematics everybody can learn and everybody should learn and maybe it's more than what is taught in uh, in our current educational system, edu education system, okay? Uh, but um, you know, I I I will never catch up with Ed Witten. Okay. The amount of stuff that he knows, the depth of that stuff, that, the, the depth by which he knows things, I'll never get there. It's not, I'm not talented enough to get there. It might be that in my 30 years in the subject, I've learned things that uh, most people also wouldn't be able to catch up with. So, uh, You know, um, there is the Moshizuki proof of the ABC conjecture, disputed. Okay, Moshizuki claims it's a proof, other people think it isn't. I will never be in the position to understand that. I mean, possibly if I started early enough, I'm not even sure. I happen to know Moshizuki, I remember him when he was young. We, we, we were friends when, like, we, went, we went, were, went to graduate school together. So I, uh, so I remember him when he was young. He was smarter and faster than me. It's conceivable that after 20 years he's gone so far that I will never be able to catch up. It's equally possible that uh, there are people who would never be able to catch up with me. Um... This said, hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. Some amount of mathematics is useful to everybody. You know, we're, we're, we're now in the, in, in the midst of a pandemic. Understanding what's the exponential function is something that uh, is basic knowledge, is something that every human should, should, should have. Because it actually dictates, it, it tells us something about how to behave uh, at this time. Uh, likewise, making various probabilistic estimates, you know, uh, if the chance of such and such type of side effects is, is, is one in a million, what does it mean? What does one in a million means in practical term for me, terms for me? Should I fear it or is it so remote that I have, that I can ignore it? Uh, so basic numeracy is, 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 is an absolute necessary ingredient and for everyone and can be reached by everyone. When you mentioned that you'll never be able to catch up to Witten and may, perhaps some people won't be able to catch up to you and so on, what is that a function of? Biology? You mentioned the word talent. So is it is that just innate? Is is what's innate called intelligence? Is that associated with IQ? Like, What are you referring to when you say you won't be able to catch up? It's a number of things. You can call it talent. You can call it IQ if you wish, but of course there is no numerical measurement and it's a much, much more complicated thing. So um, uh, you know, so much of uh, how far you can get in mathematics depends on how much you concentrate on mathematics. So, you know, uh, Maybe when you're, uh, if at a certain part of your life you're able to completely isolate yourself and think on nothing but mathematics, you'll end up knowing more mathematics than if you are also a human, a human along, alongside. Okay, uh, so. Uh, oh, so, so, so talent is also circumstance and, uh, and luck and, uh, in some sense, being narrow-minded. Somehow being narrow-minded helps in certain ways. Uh, Speaking of Eric Weinstein, you mentioned him. Okay, so 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 he was very unbalanced. He had great talent for certain kind of things and great fear of others. And maybe he would have been a much more famous mathematician, physicist now, if if it wasn't for these coincidences. So um, I don't know. 
I mean, you could call it innate, you could call it uh, learned, you can call it many things, but it's a very complicated combination of things. Tyler Goldstein has a question. Do you think we need to make new research institutions that aren't linked to academia? And I imagine what he's referring to is something that Weinstein has brought up and Wolfram as well. They're not huge fans of the peer review process, or at least they're not huge fans of only thinking that work is worth it if it's gone through the peer review process. And well, that's associated with academia. I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to that. Well, there are things outside of academia. It's not... Arguably, most research is done outside of academia. I mean, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of research is done inside companies, inside... Well, a lot of research is done outside of the peer review process. Um, but overall, I think the system is reasonable. Sorry, overall you think the system is... Well, I think the system is reasonable. So, uh, you know, you can... Um, say bad things as much as you want about peer review, but it's better than the alternatives. Uh, it's better than having no review. Um, you can say, uh, maybe mathematical should be more hierarchical. Okay, so there should be big bosses who determine which theorems we should be proving and then they should uh, have their smaller bosses who would be responsible to specific theorems and they would be the big bosses of other people who would be proving dilemmas you could say something like that it sounds like it sounds ridiculous it, 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 it would work just as ridiculously as it sounds current system is you know, given, given the limitations of humans is, is reasonably good. I believe there are some arguments to say that the, what you just outlined is somewhat like it happens given grant agencies, they have some field that they fund. And so then the research tends to go toward there. So you can view them as the large boss. And I believe Lee Smolin makes some arguments saying that that's why string theory is as large as, as it is even though it shouldn't be because we haven't seen much success from it and so on. So do you see what you just outlined as the rid ridiculous scenario? Do you see that as having any bearing to how it actually is? So, yes, of course there is bias. Uh, generated by the granting agencies by the powerful people, be them, be them the granting, granting agencies or the editorial boards of journals. So, you know, if you, publish, if, if you have a result uh, that somebody on the editorial board of an excellent journal uh, likes, 
you know, that's close to the field of somebody in the editorial board of an excellent, excellent journal, then your result is much more likely to get published in this uh, excellent journal. And then you're much more likely to get tenure and then uh, uh, more work will be produced in that field and you'll advise students who will produce even more, more work on, on that field. Yes, it all exists. Uh, but it's not clear that you can think of a better alternative. Uh, and also, there is still some amount of academic freedom. So the granting agency uh, decides once every five years uh, what my funding will be. In those five years, some of my time, I do what is necessary to get my next grant. But some of the time, I also do things that I think are useful, that I right. think are useful. Uh, likewise, uh, you know, some of my career is, is determined by which journal I publish in, but some is determined by uh, other factors, okay, by the results that aren't published, by the lectures that I give in conferences in China. You know, it, it, it's much more multidimensional than... Uh, than just having a boss, and the boss is the granting agency. Um, even the fact that the editorial boards are different than the review boards of the granting agencies allows, makes some variety. And again, what is the alternative? So, you know, uh, uh, one stupid alternative would be to say, uh, to allow anyone to say, I am a mathematician. Uh, here is my proof that uh, pi is rational uh, or that you can uh, divide, you know, here is my proof of the uh, Goldbach conjecture. Who's arguing with me? I'm saying it's a proof. My, my word is as strong as yours. It's much better not to lose control completely. You just used the word mathematician, and I'm curious, what do you see as a mathematician? Is it someone who's a professor of math? Is it someone who gets their master's or PhD? Do you have to frequently publish research in order for you to call yourself a mathematician? Like what gives, obviously it's a nebulous term, but it's not extremely amorphous, it's defined. So what do you define it as? Uh, it's hard to say. You know, um, many definitions don't have sharp boundaries. In fact, only in mathematics uh, there are sharp boundaries between things. Like either the series is convergent or it is not convergent. But only, and, and there is a very, very specific uh, criteria to decide it. Only in mathematics there are uh, sharp boundaries, and now you're asking a metamathematical question. You're asking a question about mathematics, not a question in mathematics. So there aren't sharp, sharp boundaries. So basically all of the above, you know, 
if you teach mathematics, if you think a lot about mathematics, if your way of thought is abstraction, uh, proof, um, you know, then that's mathematics. But 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 you can always you can always find the borderline things that will be hard to decide. Here's a reason why I'm asking because. Not everyone can call themselves a doctor. I know that some people, they get their MD and then they're no longer practicing researchers. They no longer are connected with the field, but then they'll give health advice resting on the laurel that they have an MD and they'll say, well, this comes from a doctor. And I'm sure the same occurs in mathematics, though to a much lesser degree. Same with physics. Someone may say, well, I'm a physicist because I, I have a degree from a university but that in physics, but that doesn't necessarily make you a physicist, doesn't mean that your physics work should be taken more seriously because you have that degree. So... If well, you're looking, if, if you're looking for a set of thumb rules to decide uh, uh, which experts are to be trusted and which should not, be them experts in mathematics or experts in medicine, Well, the answer is these questions are complicated. So, you know, in medicine, uh, you probably have to look for the bigger name doctors, the more, you know, the more established the doctors, because the system actually does, on average, promote the better people even if not always, okay? And you should look for, was it said by most doctors or by one doctor who hasn't practiced for a long time? And the same, and the same is in, in the same is everywhere. Uh, Yes, there are PhD in mathematics, people with a PhD in mathematics who, who, who shouldn't have gotten their PhD. Yes, there are people, brilliant people with, who did brilliant PhD, PhDs in mathematics and 10 years later uh, lost their mind and are speaking nonsense. I mean, it's there is no look at this certificate and if somebody has the certificate then 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 they're trustworthy ashley ship wants to know is there a connection between knot theory and protein folding and is it possible to use well if so is it possible to use the artificial intelligence research that has been done on protein folding to inform knot theory uh there is a connection between protein folding and between DNA and stuff like that and uh, knot theory. Uh, people, it's not very strong. Like in general, People like to say things about it, but the actual research, at least my own research, is very different from um, uh, what you would end up doing with 
in biology of uh, mm-hmm. uh, of, of DNAs or, or proteins. By the way, uh, uh, in some sense, uh, DNA, the, the study or, or okay, so. DNA molecules are really, 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 really long strings. Chromosomes are really, 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 really long strings. Namely, they are of length billions, or the ratio of their length to their width is billions. Okay, because they have billions um, uh, amino acids along them, right? Uh, and um, so, so you know, if you were to make it out of rope, it would be very, very, very thin rope, which is very, very long. But yet this rope is compressed into a tiny, tiny, into tiny, tiny, tiny regions. Uh, so they get knotted. And even your experience from a much smaller knot, so here's an electric cable, if you have a little bit of an experience with letting loose of cables, not tying them nightly, uh, n- nicely, as I tied this one. Yeah. yeah. If you let it loose, it gets knotted, and it, it's, it's, very, it's nearly impossible to untie. Uh, Chromosomes are much worse. They're much, much, much longer in, in, in relative terms. And they get cramped into tiny, tiny, tiny spaces. So how come they don't get knotted? And if they do get knotted, how come uh, during various uh, uh, parts of the life of a cell, so when, when, when cells... Um, uh, split, uh, they split, they somehow manage to untie themselves and disconnect. So how, how is it happening? So there must be some huge brain inside every cell uh, that can untangle knots which are much, 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 much more complicated uh, than the knots that, uh, that you can untie. Or, you know, the knots that you take hours to untie sometimes, okay? So there must be something there. And and there is something there. And there are enzymes that actually, uh, you know, so when when, uh, 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 DNA molecules need to unknot, to untangle, there are enzymes that allow one molecule to pass through the other. So basically you want to pass one string through another so that they will come to position. There are enzymes that cut this one temporarily. It gets cut, it passes to the other side and it gets reconnected. So in a sense, uh, uh, biology invented anti-knotary enzymes and, and they are necessary because of knot theory. Because if there were knots, you wouldn't be able to divide cells. Uh, 
so 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 biology invented some some anti knot theory enzymes that allow things to pass through each other that nullify knot theory. So in some sense, the most interesting knot theory that happens in biology is somehow anti knot theory. Uh, that's a lovely story, but in practice, uh, there isn't much. Jack Dessart wants to know, is math a human construct that we've devised to better understand the universe, or is math a, a set of universal unchanging principles? I'm a human. How would I know about, um, you know, how non-humans would see math or how, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, but this said, I mean, I don't want to answer the philosophical question, but I want to answer the, some, there are some practical things that comes out of it. Every bit of math. So, you know, pick up a math book here. Every bit of math in this book, and not just this, I mean, every bit of math in every book was created by a human. Uh, that's a good thing to remember. It means that there are no miracles. It means that, uh, you know, when you see a proof and you have no idea where could it come from, well, you have no idea, but somebody had this idea and you may be able to find it. Uh, so, uh, it's often extremely instructive to try to reverse engineer somehow, not just understand the proof, but understand how humans with all their failures could have found them. Uh, so, so it's actually useful to know that math was entirely created by humans at the end. Do you think we don't spend enough time in books talking about the missteps? So for example, here's how the person arrived at this proof. They originally thought of it like so. This didn't work. Or would that just bloat the book unnecessarily? It would probably bloat the book. But, but motivation should be there. Uh, and when I say motivate, okay, so... So some story is, should be told. Like when you present a proof, there should always be some plausible discovery story. How could this proof have been found? It doesn't have to be a, a, a historically accurate uh, story. But, 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 but there has to be some story explaining that this proof could have been found by humans. It wasn't created by some supernatural entity. This question, CX770 asks, does he believe in the concept of God? No. Okay, this one's a tangential question. Bill McGonagall asks, Ramanujan said that he learned from his goddess. Others suggest, well, Ramanujan said that he learned from his goddess by meditating and praying or it came to him in dreams, some of his formulas, esoteric formulas. What does Professor Jor Barnett make of this? 
can speak from Ramanu for Ramanujan. I tend to be a rationalist, uh, atheist, uh, no miracles. If I think hard about something, I either solve it or don't, but it, there's, there's, there's no, there are no miracles in the business. Another question, this one, this is my question. Are there some relatively elementary concepts that you've recently had a new insight on? So for example, my, I don't know if you know my brother, Sebastian, he's a professor at U of T as well in math finance. And he was telling me, Kurt, you know, only recently, maybe last year, I thought I realized, oh, the triangle inequality is actually about a triangle. He would only just use the formula. Also recently, okay, the Jacobian determinant, the J Jacobian is actually like, is like a linear map of, of what is that point doing close instead of just, okay, think of it as an abstraction of slopes and stuff. Yeah. So do you have an example? Uh, sorry, of what? Of things that I've only recently understood? No, no, no. Of something you have understood, you've used before, but then maybe you've come to a different understanding of you and you say, oh, that's an, an interesting way of thinking about it. I didn't see that before. It happens all the time. Well, I wish it would have happened all the time. So when it happens, it's a great day. Not all days are great day, but there is the occasional great day. Uh, you know, every time you learn some something has uh, a higher meaning. It, it's it's or, or more meaning than you thought. It's great news. It happens all the time in the life in the professional life of a scientist, uh, though not every day, okay? Um, well, uh, I'll give you an example which somehow, which I think also partially involves you. So um, uh, a few years ago, I was asked to give a 10 minutes talk or something uh, to a, I'm, I'm, I don't even remember what was the event, but you were there. Oh, you remember that a mentorship event or something like that. I don't remember. That's what that, that's right. And I thought, what would I talk about? And I, well, okay. The truth is that I have some list of, uh, ready-made topics that I can talk about, you know, if you ask me to talk in front of high school students, I sort of have a, a, a number of topics that are ready, okay? Uh, but nothing really fit. And also, sometimes I, I, I get bored of myself, so I have to occasionally add something. So I said, okay, why don't I talk about a prisoner's dilemma? And um, so I, I mentioned the prisoner's dilemma in five minutes or so. And it's a very light math, right? It's hardly math. It's so light that it's hardly math. But then I realized that, it's, that it has a profound, I, I guess the economists have always understood that. They always thought it was important. But I realized it only relatively recently. So that was, what is it, three, four years ago? Uh, I only then understood how profoundly important it is. So, you know, the prisoner's dilemma is some numerical example where uh, 
you have two sides, two people, A and B, and they can choose whether to cooperate or betray. Each one chooses independently whether to cooperate with the other or betray the other. And if you look at the numbers, each one, no matter what the other does, would prefer to betray. And as a result, both of them would betray. And the overall outcome is worse to both of them. Again, I'm not describing the whole thing. I'm not telling the numbers. I'm just saying there is this situation where if each one acts selfishly, it's, worth for, it's worse for both. And, well, it has huge philosophical implications. You know, there is a whole, a whole um, uh, political class that believes that people should be acting selfishly because if each one acts selfishly, it's actually for the best of the, uh, for better for everyone. That's somehow the foundation of the belief in free markets. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, so yes, I am actually still a great believer in free markets. I actually still greatly believe that free markets are a good thing, but there is a little asterisk. Sorry, that's not duality, that's an asterisk. So that there is a little asterisk, asterisk, and the asterisk says, provided somebody arranges so that free markets, when each one acts selfishly, you will not be led into prisoner's dilemma. Dilemmas. You will be. You will be. You'll be. You'll stay out, and uh, and your selfish acts will actually benefit the overall good. So I mean, this asterisk here is the prisoner's dilemma. Ah, sorry. I well, okay. Yes, yes, yes. I get it. Uh, anyway. Uh, and you think it's a small asterisk, but the more you think about it, you realize it's actually a huge asterisk. It completely changes the picture. Uh, and it's much, much, much more common. You think of it as an esoteric example, but then you realize that it's everywhere. So it's actually a very, very big asterisk. And um, I think I realized it relatively recently. I'm honored that you remember that. I didn't think that... Uh, I'm honored to even be a footnote in your memory. Oh, don't be silly. Okay. What... Have you applied... Oh, so this question comes from Harinavis. Harinivis. Sorry. Harinivis P asks, Has Dror applied the principles of mathematics to some other domain of his life? Like, let's give an example of a non-trivial example. Well, okay, I mean, I can give two answers, okay? One answer is, uh, well, I don't know if it's the principles of mathematics, but, you know, uh, uh, people once, uh, uh, there was a claim going on, and in, in, uh, going around, and in fact, it's still going around, 
that uh, you that the Bible contains predictions in code. So if you read the Bible with letter skips, if you read every tenth letter, uh, you will occasionally find a word. Mm -hmm. That's not surprising. But the claim was that these words were, that, that, it, that it actually happens more than statistics would uh, predict, and that these words have messages in them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and there was a group of people in uh, Jerusalem that published a paper, and in fact it passed peer review, uh, but uh, so, so they published a paper in which they uh, supposedly proved this fact. They did careful statistical analysis, again, careful in quotes, uh, and, 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 and showed that the effect was real. And therefore, the Bible uh, must have been written by God because no human could have put this information into the Bible. It's, informa it's in information that was not, did not even exist at the time that the Bible was written. And therefore, in per and, and so, so God wrote the Bible. Uh, furthermore, it's the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so there is a God, and that God loves Hebrew more than she loves uh, Japanese. I understand, yeah. Uh, you know, th this would be the greatest discovery. In, if, if it was true, it would have been the greatest discovery in the history of science. And I'm not kidding. Right? I mean, there's no longer an argument between atheism and theism. Theism wins. My role was to debunk this. Is this real life or not? I don't know. I, me and a group of people read critically these assertions that, got, that, that were good enough that they passed peer review in a respectable journal, and we found gaps. And the gaps are... Well, we're good enough that the same peer-reviewed journal accepted our paper too. Okay, so, you know, in some sense, my role was negative, right? Uh, what could have been the greatest discovery in the history of science, a proof that there is God and it's the Hebrew God, uh, was debunked. Maybe it's a negative discovery, but, well, I mean, if, maybe my effect, well, my part was negative. I've killed a great discovery. But that's also a, a, a valuable thing to do, I mean, to kill a... Uh, the other thing is, uh, otherwise, mathematics plays an extremely limited role in my life. Other than my professional life, if you, ex if you cut out uh, the eight hours a day that I work on mathematics, mathematics has no role in my life, or hardly any role. So, I mean, you do. And in fact, also, almost no role in your life. So, basically, you, you know, if you, um, uh, you give change in restaurants, you, uh, so, so, or in, in shops, sorry, you add 15% tip, uh, that's about the math you need in real life. Multiplication you don't need, uh, but, uh, but uh, if you're a carpenter, you probably need it, right? You need to uh, tile, uh, you know, if you're a trade person, you need to 
tile a certain room, uh, this, the room is five by six, right, right. how many tiles do you need? So multiplication trade people need, but, 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 but people like me don't need. Um, trigonometry, well, maybe architect need trig architect needs tri trigonometry. Some parts of engineering, and we get more and more esoteric, need higher and higher mathematics. Without the very high mathematics, without general relativity, GPS satellites wouldn't work. So in some sense, we use mathematics every day. But we're not the engineers who design GPS satellites. GPS satellites were designed by a group of, a very small group of people somewhere in some, you know, design bureau. And they use high-level mathematics. So, 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 but my real-life high-level mathematics is almost nothing, except once, sorry, the Bible codes and another time, and I've given talks with this title. So uh, the title was uh, The Hardest uh, Mathematics uh, I've uh, Ever Really. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you Google this title, probably you'll be able to find a video of that talk. And you'll find a one time where it was actually in my professional life, but in a meta way. So not my research, but something about how to present my research. I ended up using uh, very high level mathematics, hyperbolic geometry, in fact. So one time it happened. Anyway, what was your next question? Why does it take 360 pages of abstruse symbols to prove that one plus one equals two. Occam's razor says we can cut this. We can just say one plus one equals two because every single last one of us believes it does. So what do you make of that? Why is it so complex to prove something simple like one plus one equals two? Do we even need that? And this question comes from Roy Dobson. So, uh, let me answer in the, let, let me answer a, a, a different question. Uh, you know, so one plus one equals two. So the, the, the reference is probably to uh, work of uh, Russell. Um, basically, If your axiom system is very, very, very basic and, um, and very, very um, primitive in a way, very, very simple-minded, and you want your axiom system to be very, very, very basic, then it might be that even proving 1 plus 1 equal 2 would be difficult but it will be a part of the build-up. And later you will be uh, proving harder things. And, uh, but the truth is that it's silly. Okay, but let me give you an, another example. Okay, so, uh, you know, there is the intermediate value theorem. The intermediate value theorem says uh, that if you have a function, continuous function, so right. if f is continuous, 
and it's negative here and positive here, then at some point it crosses zero. Uh, we teach it in week seven, maybe, I don't know, of undergraduate calculus. Maybe it's just week five or maybe it's week nine. I don't remember, okay? You can ask, this is so idiotic. Right. Why, why does it take five or seven weeks to prove the obvious that if you go continuously from here to here, you'll be crossing zero? And the answer is that when you prove the intermediate value theorem, you are not actually proving the intermediate value theorem. You are actually testing your definition of continuity. You're testing your abstract setup. You're testing your abstract setup, your, your language. You're testing... Uh, you know, the, the, the machinery of for every epsilon there exists a delta such that blah, blah, blah. If you could not prove the intermediate value theorem, you'd be rejecting the abstract system, not the intermediate value theorem. You'd be rejecting this, not that. So the seven weeks were not about the intermediate value theorem. They were about this. For every epsilon, there exists delta. And then you can ask, what's for every epsilon there exists delta for? Why do we need this? Well, we don't need it to prove the intermediate value theorem. The intermediate value theorem was testing this. What do we need it for? And the answer is, well, there are later things like uh, e to the x is equal to sum of x to the n divided by n factorial which is, this by the way, looks innocent and people think they understand it, but it's actually a miracle. And this miracle depends, or well, it doesn't depend, but I mean, there may maybe other ways to reach there, but, but, but you, you will believe this miracle, miracle after you've understood this system. So, uh, so the answer is, uh, in a way, we didn't go from uh, uh, here to here, to here, but more like this was known, it validated this, and then uh, we could use it to do other things. The podcast is now finished. If you'd like to support conversations like this, then do consider going to patreon.com slash C-U-R-T-J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. That is Kurt Jaimungal. It's support from the patrons and from the sponsors that allow me to do this full time. Every dollar helps tremendously. Thank you.